Hi, I'm Chris, and welcome to this week's episode of To Be Published, a podcast that provides organizational leaders with the tools to integrate and synchronize, sustain it, and to generate combat power. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the Combined Arms Center, or Army University. Albert Einstein once said, creativity is intelligence having fun. We talk a lot on this show about large-scale combat operations, multi-domain operations, and the future of sustainment in combat. But in this time of weapon system modernization and increasing threats, we must not neglect the most powerful weapon system we possess, our brains. General Mattis famously once said, engage your brain before you engage your weapon. Today on the show, we're changing the format a little bit, but this episode is going to be recorded as part of an extracurricular creativity mentorship group formed by a handful of CGSC students who want to learn to be more creative. Today, we'll pop in on this group meeting as they interview Professor Angus Fletcher. But first, a quick discussion on creativity in the Army. Creative thinking is required throughout every facet of Army life, whether it's operations in the face of the enemy, training with limited resources, or leading soldiers from different backgrounds and generations. ADP 6-22, Army Leadership and the Profession, states that experienced leaders recognize when conditions change. As conditions change, leaders apply their experiences to determine a way forward. Leaders exhibit this quality through critical thinking, creative thinking, and willingness to accept risk and displaying comfort with ambiguity and the ability to adjust rapidly while continuously assessing the situation. Additionally, ADP 5-0 states that creative thinking examines problems from a fresh perspective to develop innovative solutions. Creative thinking creates new and useful ideas and reevaluates or combines old ideas to solve problems. Creativity or creative thinking is also listed under four of the six attributes and competencies in the Army Leader Requirements Model. And yet, how much time do we spend developing our creative brain? And how do we even train creativity? And not just because doctrine. Military history has shown time and time again the need for creative thinking to overcome adversity. From Slim in Burma to the staff sergeant who invented the common MRAP extraction tool, creativity has been an essential part of every battle, every conflict and every war since the dawn of man. And again, how much time do we spend developing our creative brain? And how do we even train creativity? To answer some of these questions, we have a very special guest, Dr. Angus Fletcher from The Ohio State University with us today. Dr. Angus Fletcher is an award-winning teacher, best-selling author, and one of the world's foremost scholars on the science of storytelling. He is currently a professor of story science at The Ohio State's Project Narrative, the globe's top academic think tank for the study of stories. He has dual degrees in neuroscience and literature, has received his PhD from Yale, and taught Shakespeare at Stanford. He published three books and dozens of peer-reviewed articles on the science of how literature can nurture democracy, empower personal growth, and improve our mental health and well-being. Today, we'll be studying two of Dr. Fletcher's most recent books. The first, Wonderworks, laying out how generations of authors have invented and innovated literature with breakthroughs that can help the human brain process grief, recover from drama, increase joy, stimulate creativity, and provide dozens of other neural benefits. And finally, creative thinking, a field guide to building your strategic core. Dr. Fletcher, welcome to the group. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I have a really crazy life and uh, career, as you might have garnered uh, from listening to me on some of these podcasts I've been on recently. Um, basically, I started out in neuroscience, and uh, I was just fascinated by the human brain, which is, you know, the most powerful and most terrible thing on earth. Uh, I mean, able to come up with, you know, just the most kind of magical things. I mean, 
if you've ever been in a tight spot in your life and then all of a sudden you have this epiphany, you know, or you've ever had a chance to work with someone, you know, who's a great creative or a great inventor or an artist or whatever, and you see the things our brain is able to come up with and that sense of awe. And, you know, then of course, the fact that the human brain is equally capable of destruction and, you know, at, at, a, at a global scale, you know, um, and there's certainly a lot of kinds of dark creativity that the human brain is capable of. And so, you know, I was just working in this lab and I was just fascinated because, I mean, it was just clear to me the human brain is by far the most powerful thing on earth. I mean, it's more powerful than atom bombs. It's more powerful than anything. Um, I mean, if you have a human brain, you can do anything and you can destroy anything. And I just wanted to understand more about how the brain worked and how to get more out of that brain. And at the time, uh, I was working in this neuroscience lab and we thought in that lab, just like every other lab in the world, that the human brain was basically a computer. And this is still the thing that pretty much everyone gets taught all over the place, is that the brain is a computer, it takes in data through the eyes, and it stores it in the memory banks, and then it crunches that data to make decisions, you know? And then, you know, maybe you have this thing called emotion, which is a kind of misfire in the system, or like a glitch, you gotta get rid of, and all this kind of stuff. It turns out that's not at all how the human brain works. The human brain doesn't work at all like a computer. Um, I mean, first of all, human brains are able to process almost no data. Human brains get overwhelmed after about three data points. Uh, you guys in the Army, you seem to have an almost infinite capacity for data points. I've looked at some of your PowerPoint slides. So you guys clearly can handle more data than the average person. But you're really good at making those. <laughs> for your PowerPoint slides, literally, it's like my, my brain shuts off after about two points, you know? Um, and in general, human brains are just very data light. But even though we're data light, we're really good at making decisions. We make low data decisions. How do we do that? So that's one of the things I was really interested in because we can do things that computers can't. Another thing that I was, of course, interested in is that we live in a world because of computers and AI where everyone is obsessed with predicting the future and forecasting, like how do you know the future and all this kind of stuff. Humans can do better than predicting the future. Humans can make the future. I mean, that's what we do best. We see opportunities and we enter those opportunities, we enter those spaces and we transform them. So unlike someone, you know, unlike a computer is just sitting around trying to guess which stock will go in what direction or whatever, we can actually make new possibilities, you know, make new avenues, make new actions. So I just wanted to understand how that worked. And so I have had this really interesting career where I've gone around and worked a lot in Hollywood with a lot of kind of the world's best directors um, and writers and done some, you know, kind of work there myself, worked a lot in Silicon Valley, worked at some of the big, biggest business schools in the country, worked now and continue to work with some of the biggest neuroscientists in the country. And in fact, I've been in talks, as you may know, to maybe go to DARPA for a couple of years and run a human performance project. Um, and, you know, we'd have lots of money, uh, if that was the case, to basically talk about how to kind of instead of just spending all this money on, on technology, how do we actually spend money on humans and how do we get more out of humans? Um, you know, how do we make it so that you're more vigilant? How do we make it so that, um, you know, you can process data faster, be more creative? Um, I'm not speaking to you guys specifically because I'm sure you guys are already operating at the performance, but there's probably someone in your units who needs a little bit of training. Um, and, you know, so that's the kind of stuff that we're going to maybe do at DARPA. So that's a little bit of a biography of me, basically a neuroscientist who is interested in all the stuff in the brain that's non-computational and how to kind of like boost all those things from courage to curiosity to creativity and all the rest. Tying it into WonderWorks there, because you were talking about how basically you can enhance human performance, but literature helps us do that also. Uh, because in WonderWorks, you talk about how literature can really create resiliency. And, and we've got a, this is getting away from the creativity side, but more to that resiliency side. We've got a problem, not just in the army, but in the DOD and probably culturally uh, with resiliency. Specifically in the army, we have suicides and we've got a couple other, what we call corrosives. And I think that what you're saying, uh, is that literature can help us solve some of those problems? Yeah, 
Well, so first, let's even take a step back. I mean, this is, I think, America's greatest problem at the moment is our resiliency. I mean, we are brittle emotionally as a people. We are just ravaged with anxiety and fear and stress and burnout. And so much of that is, is basically how we act ourselves. It's not from external things. It's really how we ourselves conduct ourselves in the world. And the important thing to kind of step back and remember is the, the connection between resiliency and creativity because they're really two sides of the same function. What humans evolved to do is we evolved to survive in highly volatile spaces, highly uncertain spaces, where we were constantly being confronted with emergent threats and emergent opportunities. And so we had to act in those spaces. At any moment, you know, if you think back hundreds of thousands of years ago when our species evolved, at any moment, life could change in an instant. You could be confronted with a new predator, or you could be confronted with a kind of new opportunity in your space. And you had to adapt and you had to respond to that. And the first thing that happens when you get a shock or a change or some kind of bad event or challenge in your life is it hits you in the mouth and you have an immediate emotional response. Um, and that emotional response can be panic, it can be fear, it can be grief. Um, and what you have to do when you get that punch in the mouth is say, how do I convert that negative shock into positive energy? How do I turn that around into a kind of a motivation? And the human brain can do that. The human brain can get stronger when it's punched. You've all experienced that in your life. You've had some shock or setback and it's thrown you back. And then what you have done is you've developed a moment of courage out of that or a moment of hope out of that or a moment of aggression or initiative out of that. And so first of all, the first thing we do in terms of our brain is we work on turning those negative emotions into positive emotions. And we work on how to kind of fast process negative events and shift them, as you see my kids running around in the background preparing for martial arts, shift them into, into sources of positive action. So that's the psychological resiliency part. And we can talk about how literature does that, but then once you've actually bounced back emotionally, you need to fix the problem. You need to do more than just bounce back emotionally. You need to say, what do I need to do new here? What's not in the rule book? This wasn't something that was planned. That's why I got punched in the face. You know, what do I do new? And so creativity builds on resiliency. And they're both this process of adapting to kind of shock and trauma and the unexpected and the volatile. The first is the emotional. The second is the intellectual. So the resiliency is the emotional and then the creativity is the intellectual. As far as how literature helps us um, with those things, our brain is powered largely by story, by narrative, by the stories we tell ourselves. And literature helps us upload to our brain different kinds of stories. So, you know, for example, if something bad happens to you, and you tell yourself a story about, oh, the reason this bad thing happened to me is because that other person out there, you know, or there's this conspiracy against me. Then all of a sudden your, your brain takes that bad thing and it turns it into this kind of negative energy of anger and blame and so on and so forth. If something bad happens to you and your brain said, oh, you know what, that was some bad luck. That was just some bad luck. I'll get over that. Then your brain immediately transitions out of that negative feeling into hope, into optimism. And so that's just a simple example of how the stories that we tell ourselves can empower us to respond differently to the events in our life. Because a story is just another word for an action. A story is just another word for a plot. And the things that happen in our life, those are also just narratives, plots, actions, events. And so the way that we cope with the events in our life is with literature, feeding ourselves different plots and events to react to those outside ones. As far as things like trauma go, um, it is important to draw a distinction between the origins and etiology of trauma. You know, there are um, all sorts of types of PTSD that can be caused by concussion, things like that, you know, which have a kind of physical origin. Um, but a lot of PTSD can be caused purely psychologically um, by seeing something really bad or shocking or losing someone that you care about, or oftentimes by feeling like you failed in the space. You know, by going into a situation and feeling like the situation mastered you and then just carrying, you know, guilt and regret and shame and all these unhealthy feelings with you 
that cause you know flashbacks and whatnot. And literature can help you process that. Um, one of the most effective kinds of work that we do with veterans is have them read memoirs of other veterans. And I'm not talking about just kind of like published memoirs, which a lot of times are kind of glammed up, but I mean, you know, honest memoirs, honest stories, um, sharing those stories in groups. And that work of sharing stories helps your brain process those things, find meaning in them, find perspective in them. So absolutely, literature has been for thousands of years our most effective technology. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, Greek tragedy was developed by veterans to help veterans coming back from war. And you know, when we today do scientific experiments with Greek tragedy, you can see it having that cathartic effect on veterans. So that was a very long answer, but the short of it is, yes, absolutely, literature can help, stories can help, um, and literature doesn't have to be high literature. It can just be the stories we share with ourselves on our team with our friends. No, that was a, uh, a fantastic answer. Uh, and there's so much, I think, to unpack in there talking about uh, just in terms of um, reaction and then creativity, reaction and creativity. That to me sounds exactly like combat planning and how we plan for combat. Dealing with those emotions, what happens, and then what are we going to do after it? So you got a question, Felix? Uh, yes, sir. So, hey, how you doing, sir? Uh, Felix Abeda. I'm a Space Force Acquisitions Officer. So within the Army community, I'm kind of the, the weird guy in the group. Uh, and so my question is, um, when you talked about, I have a couple of questions, but first, when you talked about um, reading memoirs and those types of things to get over trauma, um, build resiliency, is the helpfulness in that that you give in a community or a lack of feeling alone within that? And does that then enable that ability to overcome that? And does that follow in line with some of those creative thinking topics as well? Or is creative thinking and working through some of this chaos and problems an individual thing that you process through alone? And so, you know, getting over something traumatic, hey, it helps to hear that you're not going through that alone, but to truly create a new path or a new way moving forward, um, is that more of a singular task and that you develop and work through yourself? First of all, man, it's great to meet you because I love weird. I always like the outlier and the anomaly, as you might <laughs> think. Um, that's kind of my special space. Um, so, look, we don't want to put rules on creativity. Some creatives, you know, do function better alone. And, you know, sometimes if you find yourself being the kind of person that likes to kind of be by yourself and have that time to create and generate, that's really healthy. However, teams, you can have team creativity. Creativity does not have to be an individual thing. And a lot of times you'll discover if you have a tight bond with a team, the team is much more creative than the individual because each of you is bringing your own creative method to it. And if you share ideas and share perspectives and you have that trust on the team that you're willing to say something and know that it might be dumb and no one's gonna judge you, but instead they'll just say, yeah, 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 okay. And then what about this? And then that process as a team can be hugely generative. So, Creativity absolutely can be a team activity. Um, that's one of the things we work with, obviously, with special forces. And, you know, um, you know, because, I mean, you know, Green Berets, you know, if all their training is team, team, team training. Um, and we want to empower that. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about that. And there's some later modules in the book about team creativity, if you, if you want to get to that. Um, as far as why um, stories can be helpful with, with uh, trauma, there's a few kind of core things there. Um, first of all, you just have to acknowledge the pain to yourself. One of the reasons that trauma can lead to um, flashbacks is because you basically shut the memory deep in your head when you don't want to think about it. And then what happens is, is you go through the entire day not thinking about it and you're totally cool because it's like packed deep in your brain. And then you get away from people or you know, you're asleep at night or you're just like relaxing and then the memory just pops out because it's not resolved. You know? And a lot of times when we deal with that, that specific version of trauma, it's because you've kind of just put it deep in your head. And what the stories can do when you start to read other people's stories of trauma is it starts to make your brain remember your own but feel like you're in a safe space to remember it because you're remembering it with somebody else. And you can process it with somebody else because you're not alone dealing with it. And we just know from, from, you know, I mean, veterans are just much more likely to trust other veterans in terms of talking about some of their experiences, you know, 
Um, because again, I mean, a lot of trauma is caused by a feeling of failure. You know, like I, I could have helped that person. I didn't react fast enough. What was going on? You know, you know, a lot of that feeling. And when you're in a community of other people who have been there before and they can say to you, look, no one could have reacted fast enough. You know, I mean, you know, that situation was just moving too fast. You know, um, that that ability to kind of process it with somebody else. So does that kind of start to answer your question? Um, and, you know, the big thing about a lot of these, um, a big thing about a lot of the kind of PTSD is there's a culture about not talking about it because, you, you know, because, and I've just seen this a lot, is because, you know, there's this kind of fear that if you kind of talk about it, then you're becoming a problem, you know, and you're kind of becoming a burden to other people. And you're kind of bringing them down, you know, and, and it's causing all sorts of other problems. And, you know, really, you should just fix it yourself. And other people have their problems and they don't need your problems dropping them, all this kind of stuff. And that, that idea that somehow I don't want to be a problem. The reality is our best and most elite units are getting burnt out because they're not processing their own trauma. So they're actually hurting the overall performance by not processing. Because by not processing, you make yourself less and less and less able to function. So the, the gift you give to other people is actually acknowledging that you have something that you need to talk about, you know, and you need help. And that to me is core to the whole team mentality is asking for help, knowing that help will be given and knowing that when you ask for help, you're not bothering someone, you're empowering them. And, you know, really people like to be asked for help, at least that's my experience in military communities, because when you ask someone for help, it, it makes them feel, you know, useful. And then they're like, absolutely, you know, and then they come to you and ask for help. And you're like, absolutely, I want to help you. So I hope that makes sense in terms of just breaking down that boundary and why stories are helpful and just allowing everyone to feel like it's okay to talk about these things. Yes, sir, definitely. Um, and then one kind of follow-up question. You said uh, human mind, um, you know, not great at processing data. How within chaos, when there's the overwhelming amounts of data, does that help people become more creative, even though they're overwhelmed, high stress with more data? How does the human mind kind of work through that? So this is what's amazing about the human mind, in, in my opinion, is let's start with how computers operate. Computers get better the more data they have. And so we're all taught, and this is something I see all across Army doctrine and, and in general across the Armed Forces, you always need more and better data. Don't make a decision until you have all the data, right? This thing over and over and over and over again. There's, that's a problem in a chaotic situation because first of all, the data is all pointing in different directions. Second of all, the data is obsolescing. If you're in a fast changing environment, the data you have from two seconds ago doesn't pertain to now because the, the, the landscape is changing. You've actually got to forget all that data, you know? I mean, anyone, if you've ever been, you know, playing a sport or something like that, you know, you have to learn to forget as much as you have to learn to observe, you know? Um, so the thing about computers is they just wrong foot you into thinking somehow you have to process all this data. Um, that's not actually the case. Number one thing to remember about a chaotic environment is everyone is dealing with that chaos. The person you're fighting is dealing with that chaos too. And the way to win in a chaotic environment is to start dominating the environment. The more you enter the environment and push hard, the more that puts your adversary on the back foot. And then they're not just dealing with the chaos, they're dealing with you. And the reason I say that is because the instinct that most people have when they enter a chaotic situation is to freeze and try and figure everything out, you know? Um, and that's totally fine if you're not dealing with an adversary, you know, you know, um, but the moment you deal with an adversary, you have to say, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be perfect in this environment. I'm just trying to beat him. So the first thing is you want to be aggressive. You want to have an issue. And the human brain has that ability. Then the question is, is how does the human brain have that ability? Well, the answer is, instead of trying to get all the data, the human brain looks for the weirdest data. What's the most anomalous thing in this environment? Because that anomalous thing is telling you that's the breakpoint. That's the furthest reach of possibility. That's the extreme limit of the weird. And if you can wrap your mind around that weird thing, make it part of you and then push forward, 
You are joining with the chaos, essentially, and you are doubling your opponent's problem. So I hope that that answers it. It's not about trying to get all the data. It's just trying to get the right data. And in chaos, the right data is the thing that strikes you as being most unusual. And you don't want to wait too long to try and figure what that is. Just trust your instincts. Your brain has evolved. Literally, the circuitry in the human brain, most of it dates back 500 million years, a billion, a half a billion years. And that's how much evolution has produced your intelligence. So, And that's the fight or flight instinct, right? Like the. So there's two separate things here. When you hit a kind of chaos situation like that, yes, absolutely. This pumps adrenaline into your brain. And your brain is like, okay, do I go forward or do I go back, you know, and so on and so forth, you know, but once you've made that decision, I'm going to go forward. That's when you have to actually calm down and get out of fight or flight, you know, that's the transition. And we work a lot with this. Um, I'm sure you guys work a lot with this all the time is when you get into a, a high stress situation, what your brain is telling you there is this is volatile. When you start feeling fight or flight, when you start feeling that uh, adrenergic response, that's your brain saying, this is a volatile, high stress situation. And then at that point, you have, to, you have to make a gut check. And you have to say, am I getting stressed out because I'm pushing the situation? Am I trying to over control this situation? Am I not trusting the plan? You know, am I over, you know, am I getting out ahead in some way? Do I need to actually just chill out and trust the plan? Or, Am I getting this fight or flight response because this situation is breaking the plan? My plan is getting smashed, you know? Once you make that decision, whether you're just kind of, I mean, because we've all been in that situation where we have a good plan, the plan's right, but then the moment we hit impact, we do have a moment of panic, right? We're like, what's going on? You know, stuff's flying around, you know? And, and the temptation can be just like, oh my God, you know, whatever. But if the plan is okay, you just got to run forward through the chaos and trust the plan. If the plan is breaking, that's the moment where you have to calm down and say, I need to engage my creativity. I need to forget about the plan because the plan is from two seconds ago. And two seconds ago is not natural. That was, that was the best option on the table two seconds ago. Now it's not. Um, and what you have to say to yourself mentally is, it's a good thing I made that plan because by making that plan, I train myself to be a good planner. And now I'm going to make another plan. And then that's when you go back and you start noticing weird things, outlying data points, and trying to be aggressive in the space um, and, 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 and push forward. Uh, we can talk a little bit about how to push forward those kinds of things. But the first thing is just to kind of get yourself comfortable in a space of chaos, coming up with plans. Um, and then once you start to find a plan that you think could work, start to push it forward, not too aggressively. Um, it's important to remember that a creative idea is not necessarily the same as an idea that will work. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, there's a difference between creativity and innovation, which we can talk about. But the first step is switch on my creativity, start having ideas, start planning, start seizing the initiative in space. Hey, sir. Another question. Uh, so when you talk about like the buildup in the book, you have the simple dirty and then you have module one. And the way I read it is almost you trying to portray that we as humans are inherently creative, right? We're alive today based off that creativity, right? And our development uh, through society, ability to adapt and all those. Um, I kind of read that as saying like, hey, creativity is not something we learn. It is something we unlock within ourselves. Um, is that kind of how you view it and see it? Is that the way that you set up the book to kind of read and progress as we go through the modules? Yes, but so yes, your brain is hugely creative and it has evolved to be creative. Human beings are the most creative things on earth. We are extraordinary. And a lot of our educational institutions and organizations crush that creativity out of us. And we have to learn to get it back. 
Because honestly, you know, I mean, I think we've all been in situations where it's like you're in a classroom, a teacher's telling you something, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, this is like all of high school, a lot of college, you're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you check the boxes and then you get out of life and none of it works, you know? Um, and, and what you have to do in life is you have to adapt, you have to respond, you have to be aggressive, you have to probe, you have to try things, you know, you have to use. So first of all, yes, there's a ton of, of, of creative potential in all of us we need to unlock. And I think, you know, the U.S. military, and to me, the reason I find it so inspirational to work with the Army, honestly, um, and also, of course, the Space Force, uh, which I know almost nothing about. And, and by the way, I'm working a lot with AFID, so I know some Space Force guys there. So if you want to touch base on that later, you know. Um, but, you know, as I, I feel like, you know, our military is the front edge. And, you know, that's when you hit chaos. That's when you hit unpredictability. That's when you hit volatility. That's when you need acts. That's when you get out of the classroom and you're dealing with situations that no book can tell you how to cope with. Um, and so, yes, we want to empower and unlock that natural talent. Having said that, you can get more creative. And this is something I've just seen through my career, and this is the science backs this, is you can, the more you practice the exercises in the book and other things, you know, we can talk about, the more you practice, the more you'll see yourself just getting better and better and better and better and better at it. It's a muscle in your head. It's just like running on a treadmill. You know, I mean, anyone in this room, when they were 18, they could probably run half a mile, a mile, I don't know, you know, I mean, because, you know, I mean, that's just natural. We don't run a certain distance as a human being. But then when you start training, you can run five miles, you can run 10 miles, you know? And, and that's the point is to first unlock, and the first part of the book is unlocking your natural creativity by, you know, emphasizing it. But then the second part of the book is really saying, okay, here's how you build, here's how you build, here's the treadmill, here's how you strengthen the muscle, here's the weights you can lift. Um, because there is a huge potential in you and overall in the armed forces um, to fix this world by coming up with new answers, <laughs> uh, by going into contested spaces and figuring out how to resolve those conflicts and leverage them in positive directions. And that muscle, that kind of the same way you can build your muscles to push over a wall, you can build your muscles to create, to imagine, to do anything. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a ton of sense, sir. Um, uh, one other question. Uh, could you go back? You said creativity versus innovation, or can you, yeah. can you talk to that, kind of how you see the difference between the two? Yeah, so they're, they're really radically different in the sense that creativity is something new and an innovation is something new that works. Something can be incredibly creative. I mean, we could come around and just come up with like the most amazingly creative idea and it would just be a complete fail. And we could then also sit around and come up with something that's just like really only tiny, just a little bit creative, and it would make us a billion dollars. So, so you have to say to yourself, okay, the two of them are connected insofar as ultimately is our goal creativity or is our goal innovation? Our goal is innovation. And by, and, and you know, our goal is to do something because the whole reason we're creative in the first place is because we want to do something that works in this space. We want to figure out how to, you know, exploit, you know, but, but you can't, you can't get to innovation without creativity. That's right. No, that's right. And that's right. That's right. And, and the two of them point in different directions in the sense that creativity um, is highly inefficient, random and arbitrary. And the reason that a lot of organizations end up not being innovative is because they're so scared of the inefficiency of creativity. And they just want to jump over creativity to innovation. And that's why you get all this fake innovation in America, honestly, is because people don't want to actually invest in the mess and the inefficiency um, and the, the risk taking. So the book, first of all, just basically starts out by trying to encourage you guys how to build creativity. There's a ton of basic stuff on how to build it. Um, but then towards the end, it starts to pivot towards innovation. And there are just a, there are a few key things about innovation. Um, the first is um, you want to test things slow. You want to pilot them. You don't want to go all in on something. If you have a creative idea and you know that it's going to work, you're wrong. If an idea is really creative, there's no way to know that it's going to work. I mean, that's the whole reason for creativity in the first place. So if you know it's going to work, it's either not creative or you're just caught in your own personal bias, you know? 
So if you, you know, if you're just, I just know this is going to work. Do not bet your house on it. Find a way to test it that mitigates the risk. And, you know, this is the same in, you know, in, you know so, so I work a lot, you know, with like big Silicon Valley companies and stuff like that, you know, and if you just have this idea for a breakthrough project, is there a way you can pilot it for a thousand bucks as opposed to a million bucks, you know, can you kind of keep that cost down? Same thing if you're in a, um, if you're in a conflict zone, you don't want to be trying creative idea when people's lives are on the line. If you, if you can avoid it, you know, you want to be testing and probing. Is there a way I can try this? Can I see what happens? You know, I, I have a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction based on my idea about what my adversary is going to do. Can I test that in a low risk way? You know, can I throw something or move something or do something and see if he responds as anticipated? So that's the first thing. You just want to test gently when something's creative. Don't get too high on your own supply. You know, um, the second thing is it always works best if you can test two creative ideas at the same time. That's not always possible. Um, in a conflict environment, but certainly when you're dealing in a kind of acquisition or technology space, it is. Um, and so, if you want to test two ideas, oh, sorry. So, so how do you do that? How do you, how do you test two things at the same time? Meaning like parallel testing and A-B testing? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, and, you know, I mean, DARPA and the Pentagon do this all the time. And, and basically it's like, we need a new, we need a new um, rifle. Let's put out three contracts for rifles. And, you know, let's see which rifle works best, you know, something like that. So that's a simple answer, right, you know? Um, but, you know, you, you can do that also in the prototype stage. If you're the guy building the rifle, you can build three prototypes of your rifle. And the reason that that's important is because the more you test at the same time, the more you see the opportunity space. If you're just testing one thing and it works, you have no idea if it's working because actually anything works. You know, like, and, and they said, oh, it's great. You know, it's working. Well, but maybe it could be working five times better. You have no idea because you're just testing one thing. You know, maybe you just came up with the greatest invention of all time, or maybe it's actually pretty crappy and you could be doing more, you know. If you test one thing, you also get over-emotional. You get invested, over-invested in it emotionally. And, you know, oh, this has to work. We have to figure out how to make this work. And I see this all the time with military stuff. They get like, you get over-invested with stealth bomber or something like that. That's like, oh, we've got to keep pumping money into this to make it work. It's got to work, you know? Whereas if you had two separate things going at the same time, you'd be much more neutral about it. That's why, by the way, if any of you are planning to have kids, have at least two kids. It makes you much more chill. If you got one kid, you're always stressing out, you know? You got two kids, you're like, you know what? One of them's going to work out. It's going to be fine, you know? Um, so does that kind of make sense? Having two just allows you to be more objective, learn more about the space as well. Yeah, it does. And maybe too, as the acquisition guy, right? We're talking acquisition things right now. Um, the, the rifle example is a great idea. Um, and you know, you test these multiple things. How do you not, and this is a fairly a loaded, broad question that I think people have tried to answer for decades, but as the guy who wants to buy a rifle, how do you say, hey, I want three different rifles, but you tell me what a rifle looks like, right? And I know there's not a definitive answer for this, but to your point of like, we get very married on a topic, right? And it's only because our views and what we can see are fairly focused. And so it's, hey, you said provide three rifles, but if a, a rifle wasn't really what we're looking for, right? We've inher inherently inhibited the creativity along the way to never yes. get to connection. Um, this is brilliant. I have an answer for you if you want it. Yes, yes. And DARPA, I think, is one of those organizations that tries to do this. So I'm keenly interested. Yeah. So this answer is not coming from DARPA. It's coming from Steve Jobs. So, um, so basically, when I started out early on in my career, I had this opportunity to work with Pixar. And, you know, Pixar is basically built by Steve Jobs. And they kind of used his kind of whole engineering method to build things. So that gave me a lot of opportunity both to study how the Apple was developed, but also how Pixar was working. And I realized they were both doing the same thing. They were focusing on what they wanted to do, not what the structure was. So like, if I say to you, I want a rifle, I'm focusing on the structure. I'm focusing on the form as opposed to the function. If I say to you, I want to be able to kill people 2,000 feet away, you see, that's focusing on the function. And then if I say, I want to be able to kill people 2,000 feet away, you could come back with a rifle or you could come back with something totally different, you know? You come back with a laser, you come back with a drone, I don't know what you come back with, you know? 
So the key is if you want to inspire innovation, focus on what you want to do, not on how you want to do it. Focus on the effect. Um, so, you know, in storytelling, you know, uh, this is the classic example between Pixar and Disney. Disney always tells the same story. It's always the same formula. It's always the same fairy tale. The reason that Pixar is able to innovate is they say, we want to make you cry, you know, or we want to make you think that a rat can make food or whatever, you know, and just come of these crazy things, you know, and you should do the same thing. You should say, what do I want? What do I need? You know, I want to, I want to be able to kill people through walls. That's actually what I need. I need to be able to kill people through walls without harming the wall. Tell me how to kill people through walls without harming the wall. Now, if I can build a rifle to do that, great. You know, um, so does that answer make sense? And that, that will always work. If you can be precise about what you want to, them to do and then leave every aspect of the design up to them, that's where you maximize the innovation. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. They're attributes of what you want rather than requirements of what you want built. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I really like the example of, hey, we want to make you cry. The equation to make you cry can be whatever you can come up with. Yeah. Uh, I, I like, yeah, I like that a lot. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Hmm. Any other questions? Clearly, I've got all the answers here. I'm like sitting in my crazy house with my crazy answers. You got questions about anything? I'm just here to answer them, make everything simple in life, you know? <laughs> well, I think you're doing a, a really good job so far. Um, so, again, we've been using um, this book, Creative Thinking, a Field Guide. Uh, to your strategic core. And you've been doing it as a group uh, and sort of a self-accountability tool, holding each other accountable to, to building ourselves up. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book uh, and then how you intended it to be used? I mean, we're doing it the way that we feel is appropriate, but what are some other ways that maybe our, our listeners can, can use your book? So I wrote the book because I was asked to do it by the army. It never would have occurred to me in a million years, to be totally honest with you, that I had anything to teach the army. <laughs> um, you know, I would have completely thought it was the other way around. What basically happened was, you know, I developed, so I, I am responsible in my lab for developing a completely new theory of how creativity can be trained and assessed. Um, the origins of creativity training and assessment actually date to the 1950s in the Air Force. And they produce this idea known as divergent thinking. And so 99% of the training you get in creativity is some version of divergent thinking, and that's also how they test creativity. And we have just known for over 30 years that it doesn't really work. Um, and we also know that you can program computers to do divergent thinking, and they're amazing at it, and they don't get any more creative. They're just still computers. Um, so we've known about this problem for a while. And, you know, we came up with this crack to the problem in my lab. We kind of figured out a different way of training and assessing creativity. And we started by kind of partnering with a lot of big business schools and a lot of big businesses and CEOs and kind of teaching them how to do it. Um, and that was when I got a phone call from the Commanding General Staff College, uh, you know, Kenneth Long and Richard McConnell. And they said, we hear you have this new way of training creativity. And I said, I do. And they said, tell us what it is. And I basically said just a lot of the stuff that I just said to you guys about chaos and volatility and all these kinds of things. And they said, you should write a workbook for the army. And I said, well, that's great, except that uh, you don't want me charge, uh, in charge of the army. If I was given a gun, the person I would be most in danger, you know, I would be most in danger myself, basically. Um, you know, you don't want me in charge of this kind of equipment. And they said, no, 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 no. We're going to give you a crash course in military history. And so, you know, I got a crash course courtesy of the Commanding General Staff College on Napoleon and Caesar and all this kind of stuff. And then basically I sat down over a weekend and wrote this draft uh, uh, field book, field guide, um, based on all the stuff that I had kind of learned um, and all the science. I just put what I had been taught by the Commanding General Staff College together with the science wrote the book, um, and then I gave it to the team. You know, I gave it to, you know, uh, Ken and uh, Rich and everyone, and I expected a lot of feedback, basically being like, this is a disaster, what are you doing? And instead they were like, this is great. And then they handled it on to special operations, and special operations was like, this is great. And now we're gonna train within the special operations. And it goes to DARPA, and DARPA's like, this is great, we're gonna train with it. 
And so really almost all the credit has to go towards the army <laughs> in training me in a condensed period of time. And the main point behind the book is we just realized institutionally, it was going to be almost impossible to change the curriculum. You know, the, the goal really would be to go start like, you know, at like West Point and, and ROTC, and we are kind of moving in those directions now. We've had a lot of positive feedback from ROTC and from West Point, but to basically build in a kind of creative thinking class there, um, specifically built to these kinds of strategic focuses. But we just knew that wasn't going to happen right away. And we knew that there's a real need for it now. We, we kind of all see the challenges that we're all facing in the world. And we all know that we need adaptive, aggressive thinkers. Um, you know, And so the idea is just to kind of build a book that you can do that hopefully is fun and that doesn't go too deep into the science. I mean, I don't go on every page into all the extreme details of what's going on in your brain and the rest of it. But that if you just do the book, it's guaranteed to increase your creativity probably by double, <laughs> at least, if based on the trials that we've done so far. Um, and um, so that's just the idea, it was just kind of a workbook for people to take into the field, you know, um, to work with, with units, to, to do exactly what you're doing now, just to kind of, kind of get the ball rolling. Um, and then, you know, we're working with SAMS, the School of Advanced Military Studies, uh, um, uh, Jim Greer there, and we're gonna hopefully try and kind of move it into that curriculum as well. Um, kind of maybe that. So, I mean, that's basically the point. It's just to give you everything that you need to teach yourself so that you don't need to be reliant on the curriculum. And if you follow the book and just do everything the book says, it should work. I mean, it may not be perfect because as I said, you know, it was written in two days or whatever, um, but, but all the science in it is solid. So I think we're, we're almost out of time and I wanna be respectful of your time. Um, anything else that we left on the table that we didn't cover? Or I guess you didn't cover. <laughs> well, I mean, I just wanna say for a start, how just honored I am to be part of this project. And I hope it's a project that becomes, you know, much bigger than me and much bigger than you and much bigger than CGSC and much bigger than SAMS, you know? I think that, that we are at a moment in our nation's history where we need new ideas. We need fresh thinkers. Um, we need thinkers who see challenges and are excited to embrace them and find new solutions. And, you know, I think that the, um, the Army has been leading this initiative on creative thinking to the point that other branches are now trying to catch up. And I think the Army can continue to lead, not just the rest of the military, but America, I mean, this is needed. We're in a moment of just intense fragility. And I think we all have a lot to learn from each other. So, because I think there's just a enormous possibility ahead of all of us. America has always been about empowering individuals. I mean, more than anything else, it's a space for people to come and create their own lives, to invent, to imagine, uh, uh, to do something unique. And that's the opportunity we want to give to our kids. And that's the opportunity we want to give to the world. And so that to me is the opportunity ahead of us to kind of get out of the mindset that I think a lot of people are in now, a kind of fear mentality of things are being taken away from me. I'm scared about the future. Why is everything changing? And instead into a kind of more positive mentality of this is a chance for us as a country to do what we've always done and lead and make the future and embrace change and not see volatility as something that scares us, but to see it as an opportunity for us to empower everyone around us to be their most individual selves. Yeah, there was a, uh, I was listening to a podcast that you did with Jordan B. Peterson. Uh, and one of the quotes that stuck out to me was that uh, the fundamental supposition is the best way to make better societies uh, is by concentrating on making better individuals. Uh, and so I think that quote really sticks with us and we're all individually working on that uh, to get better. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm inspired, honestly, and grateful. And I hope to see more of you guys in the future. Yeah. So before we let you go, uh, I've got three questions kind of in our rapid fire mode that I'd like to pose to you uh, so it. that we can get to know you a little bit better. Um, what book 
Now, are you reading or have you read recently that you'd recommend to us? I would honestly say I'm, I'm at the moment right now, I'm reading uh, Caesar's history of, of uh, the wars in Gaul. And it's completely amazing. I mean, he is an enormously creative thinker and both the actual strategies that he did, but also the way that he talks about himself. And you know, he's always kind of not being totally truthful with you because he's building his own myth and he's building his own legend. And I'm just really fascinated by creative people like Caesar, you know, like Patton, who at the same time as they're brilliant in, in life are also constantly myth-making. So I totally recommend that. It's a fascinating and wonderful book. Favorite movie? So it's gotta be The Thin Red Line. I don't know if you guys have seen The Thin Red Line. It's, it's just- A long time ago, yeah. It's so beautiful, it's so weird. It's so painful. It's so strange. I mean, it's a war movie without a single hero in it. There are voiceovers from guys who are dead and are coming back into consciousness. I mean, you know, it's just very, very strange, but it's just also very, very, very powerful. And to me, it just kind of captures the elemental sense of this struggle we have in life, which is both dark and light, um, and which can take everything from us, but which can give us the opportunity to be our greatest selves. Yeah, I'll have to rewatch that one. It's been a while. Uh, and then finally, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, uh, what would it be? Trust yourself. Beautiful. I mean, honestly, I think, you know, when, when we get, go up in life, you know, we're, we're always kind of being told, particularly by authority figures in our life, you know, that you know, don't mess up, get it right, you know, and, and all these kinds of things. And the reality is there's a reason that humans don't live forever. It's because life changes and we need new ideas and new thinkers. And I think a lot of the time when you're young, you're afraid to kind of voice that because it's different. It's different from what the people around you think. And I just want to go through life and empower people to be themselves, to take chances on themselves and to trust that if they get something wrong and do something dumb, they'll learn from it. And so that would be the number one thing I would say to myself and that I would say to everyone is trust yourself, trust other people. Um, the more you can give them that honest trust, particularly in a kind of team situation, the more you empower them to be their best selves. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Fletcher, for talking to us today. Uh, I think uh, this has been an incredibly insightful uh, discussion on creativity, literature, a healing instrument, a tool to build resilience. I really appreciate you, you taking the time out of your day to talk to us. 